You're listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. I want to talk to you for a minute about my buddy Sam Morris and his leather work. He made me a cool leather journal cover. I use a Loistrom uh, 1917 journal for most of my journaling and my time management, productivity issues, all that kind of stuff. And uh, carries my pencils and a field notes little pad. Uh, and he did a fantastic job. He got his start making uh, pastoral or teaching note cover, uh, notebooks. So they're made out of leather. Uh, pastors use them for their preaching notes. Professors use them for their teaching notes. Uh, and these things are high quality and they look fantastic. Now, here's the deal. You can only get him on Twitter. It's at Sam Morris eight at S A M O R R I S numeral eight at Sam Morris eight on Twitter. Hit him up. He'll get in contact with you there and give you a quote. Uh, and you will not be disappointed in your leather work from Sam. Have you ever wondered how American slaves viewed Paul's writings in the new Testament? Paul gets a lot of disrepute these days because people don't feel like he was brash enough against the institution of slavery, even though a careful study will reveal that much of Paul's writings uh, under uh, undermined the slavery institution. And indeed, um, a lot of it was used to uh, support the idea of freedom. And so, um, but have you ever wondered what happened when the slaves themselves uh, read Paul? or even beyond the slaves themselves, African-American pastors and teachers, or as Lisa Bowens calls them, interpreters of Paul. My guest today on Uncommentary is Dr. Lisa Bowens. She is Associate Professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. And the book that we're going to be talking about some of the content from is African-American Readings of Paul, Reception, Resistance, and Transformation. And I have to say that this is a great book. Uh, it's, It's not Everything that I thought it was going to be, it's better in some ways, and then it's different in some ways. It was revealing about uh, how widely Paul was accepted amongst African-American pastors uh, when the expectation might have been differently because of how some of his slavery passages are interpreted. I hope you enjoy this interview. This is Dr. Elisa Bowens. I'm really excited about my guest today. Dr. Lisa Bowens is Associate Professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. Your business card must be like six inches wide to get that entire thing on there. Uh, Is your PhD from Princeton as well? Yes. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, So MSBE, MLIS from University of North Carolina at Greensboro, MTS and THM from Duke Divinity School, PhD, there it is, PhD from Princeton. My word. Uh, First book. (laughs) I'm telling you, I'm going to have to. uh, So did you grow up or are you from North Carolina? Is that home for you? Yes. Yes. I'm from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to try to pick up on any uh, little wackadoodle accent from North Carolina <laughs> that you might throw out. Sometimes I can pick up a North Carolina the way uh, you pronounce the, uh, words that have I in them. Occasionally mm-hmm. that I is like drawn out a lot, like winding. Uh, so I'm going to I'm going to listen for that. Uh, yeah, so your I had first book accent until I moved to New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then I was like, it, the, my accent was pointed out to me by other New Jersey people. <laughs> yeah, like nobody in New Jersey has an accent. Come on, <laughs> good night. Uh, so your first book 
is uh, was an apostle in battle, Paul in spiritual warfare uh, from 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, your second book, African American Readings of Paul: Reception, Resistance, and Transformation, was published by Erdman's. Uh, was that 2020 or is it before that? 2020. 2020. Yeah. Uh, so you like Paul a lot. As I look down, I'm gonna. So folks, if you're listening, I'm gonna link to uh, Dr. Bowen's bio uh, in the show notes, and you really need to read down through it. It is very substantial. I am so honored and encouraged. Uh, that you're able to hang out today. So Dr. Lisa Bowens, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here today. So now that I've told everybody how smart you are and how long you've been in school, uh, what's something out of the ordinary or something just normal life about Dr. Lisa Bowens that people might be interested in? Well, I love to travel and I love mysteries. Really, like so, mis- no- yes. novels, mystery. Yes. So, who's your mm-hmm. who's your favorite and, mystery author? Well, mysteries in terms of TV shows. Oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So, I was going to throw a little Agatha Christie on there because I uh, used to read her when I was in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I like to watch old classic mystery um, shows like Columbo. Okay. Barnaby Jones. Hmm. No, I haven't heard of Barnaby Jones, <laughs> <laughs> but I have heard of Columbo and Murder She Wrote. Those type of oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> Jessica Fletcher killed everybody in Cabot's Cove. <laughs> She's the most prolific serial killer in the history of the world. Uh, Barnaby Jones. For those of you who aren't old enough and uh, were doing other things on Sunday night after church, was um was Jed Clampett's next uh, series. So Buddy Ebsen went from being Jed Clampett to playing this homespun type of detective, not not quite a Matlock type figure, uh, but just a real innocent type guy, drink milk in the bar, that kind of thing. Um, I, I don't remember where he was based, but Barnaby Jones lasted, I don't know, maybe four or five seasons. And it was about as dull, I guess, as you could possibly imagine a show like that would be. Okay, I may have to check Barnaby Jones out. I've never heard of that show. Yeah, yeah. There's probably a reason you haven't ever heard of it. (laughs) So um, you you have a a special attention, it seems, to the Apostle Paul. And um, you spend a lot of time uh, in focus on his writings in the New Testament. Um, The thing that drew me to your book especially was um, how... Slave preachers, uh, Mm -hmm. slave evangelists uh, Mm -hmm. viewed Paul. Most of them, it seems to me, even though uh, there's, it's easy, I guess, to debate that Paul didn't go as far as a lot of people wish he had on Mm -hmm. the issue of slavery. A lot of slaves actually took Paul to be like, yeah, this is not a good thing and you guys are free and you ought to live like it. And they were kind of reading it in a way that escaped a lot of people. What, first of all, what drew you to this particular project? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the idea for this project came about when I was working on my dissertation, actually, which is the first mm-hmm. book we talked about in the introduction, um, Apostle in Battle. So one of the things I had wanted to do in my dissertation was to have a chapter on 
how African Americans have interpreted that particular passage, Paul's ascent to mm. the third heaven. Mm-hmm. And I had a great advisor, um, Dr. Ross Wagner, who's who is now at Duke. And we had a conversation and he thought, well, I think this is actually a separate project than hmm. putting it in your current dissertation. And um, I actually decided to expand that topic for this second book and not just look at how African-Americans interpreted that particular passage, um, mm-hmm. 2 Corinthians 12. But I wanted to look at how did they interpret Paul more broadly. And one of the, another mm-hmm. reason that I did that um, was because, okay, I was having that conversation with my advisor, but then at the same time, I was attending different conferences in which the story of Howard Thurman's grandmother was being told. And it was being told as the way African-Americans interpret Paul. Mm-hmm. So a couple of a couple of things were happening at that time. So I have, was having this conversation uh-huh. with my advisor and I was going to these conferences. And so I just decided, well, is that really the case, right? I wanted to, to just investigate that question. How do African-Americans uh-huh. interpret Paul? Is the story of Howard Thurman's grandmother, Nancy Ambrose, the way? And so mm-hmm. that's kind of how this project came about, just centering on that particular research question. How do African-Americans interpret Paul? And, and you found that, that it wasn't the same yeah. across the board, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I was really surprised by that. Um, I really thought I would find more negative interpretations mm-hmm. of Paul, um, that there would be much more um much more uh, a common way for African-Americans to distance themselves from Paul. But what I found was that many over and over Mm -hmm. again, many interpreters gravitated toward Paul for many reasons, right? Right. They, they saw connections with him um, in terms of suffering. They saw connections Mm -hmm. with him in terms of being a figure of liberation. So there were many ways they um, connected with him through experiences, divine experiences they had. Mm -hmm. And they saw kinship with Paul in that way. So it was quite a journey. I really, really enjoyed um, learning about all of these interpreters and the various ways they interpreted Paul and Pauline scripture. What are some uh, What are some of the texts that, um, as you were studying through, that one would appropriate to say, uh, I identify with Paul in the way that he suffered here, that would put it in a in a perspective that would make his writings on slavery lesser important than the fact that they could identify with him also in suffering. Yeah, so that's a great question. So when I started this project, my original goal was to work all the way from the 1700s to the 21st century. That was my original goal. Well, that's not ambitious and... at all. <laughs> I was a little bit naive there. <laughs> the the encyclopedia of African-American perspectives on Paul. <laughs> exactly. And as I started doing the research, I, I realized there were just too many interpreters, too much material. So I had mm. to stop in the mid 20th century with the civil rights movement. And even with that, I don't include all the interpreters who mm-hmm. could have been included. And I say that in the book, but I would say um, one of the ways that these, many of these interpreters connected with Paul was through the suffering. 
Like Paul gives this list of suffering in 2 Corinthians 11 of all the things mm-hmm. he endures. And you see that um, a number of these interpreters um, resonate with that. Like um, They see their sufferings in terms of suffering for the sake of the gospel, mm-hmm. um, suffering um, for the redemption of others. You see that in King's work when he talks about how we are presenting our bodies. That's another passage, Romans 12, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices and how he and the civil rights workers are actually presenting their bodies as they are protesting, right, against segregation Mm -hmm. and how their bodies actually become living sacrifices for um, liberation of others, like sisters and brothers who are Mm -hmm. suffering under Jim Crow. So there are, those are a couple of the passages that come up, Romans 12, um, 2 Corinthians 11, um, and also Galatians, when Paul talks about, I'm bearing in my body the marks of mm-hmm. Christ. And you mm-hmm. see a number of these interpreters talk about um, the marks that they bear upon their bodies um, for Christ. But you also see um, the relationship they have with Paul in terms of their divine experiences which is another fascinating element of my research. A number of these interpreters have profound divine encounters with God. Yeah, that was a, uh, that was an interesting part of the book for me. Uh, I mean, I was raised Southern Baptist. I mean, I still attend a Southern Baptist church, but those kinds of experiences were like, okay, that happened in the Bible. Don't expect God to show up in your backyard or something like that. And I was reading through this and I was like, Okay, I got nothing. I'm not about to say God didn't speak to these people. I'm not about to say God didn't call these people. That is way above my pay grade. <laughs> he can bless them and they can answer or they can be blessed either one. But that's so I was really fascinated by the number, especially because they were told they couldn't do it or they yeah. told they shouldn't do it or those kinds of things. And yet yeah. they, they believed that they had an experience where God called them to preach or called them to yeah. minister in some way. And I was just really astounded by that. Yeah, it was fascinating for me, too, as I read their stories, their autobiographies and how they give such great detail about their experiences mm-hmm. and how they share mm-hmm. their encounter with God and how the Holy Spirit leads them and teaches them and yeah. guides them. And um, as you say, for many of these interpreters, those experiences um, result in a call, a call Mm -hmm. to preach, proclaim the gospel. And they're doing it in a context in which, um, you know, black bodies are considered um, nothing, considered inferior. And yet they experience the divine upon their bodies and God sends them out Mm -hmm. and they recognize this call and they follow it. No matter what, even in the midst of oppression and in the midst of possible um, death, even, but they continue to go forward. I think a particular mm-hmm. Zilpha Elah, who was actually you know a, a black woman preacher, um, um, and she's born free, but she has these divine encounters with God. She ends up accepting the call to preach, and she ends up preaching in the slave states. Right. Wow. And, and she goes and she recognizes that she's going into territory that's dangerous for her as a black mm. woman. She could be enslaved. She could be captured. But she goes anyway because she believes God calls her to do that. Mm. And um, it's just a, she has a fascinating as many of these all these interpreters do have a fascinating mm-hmm. story because she talks about 
how she does feel fear in following God's call, but she does it anyway. Right. Right. And, right. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, these divine encounters for many of these interpreters compel them to go forward in society to pro- protest and resist racism um, and also gives them a sense of sustenance in mm-hmm. the midst of such opposition. What is, um, so Lemuel Hayes, Hayes or Haynes? I always Haynes. mess his name up. Lemuel Haynes. Haynes. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my friends says he's his favorite pa- favorite preacher, I guess, that America's ever produced. He would probably say Spurgeon's his favorite preacher, but he says uh, Lemuel Haynes is the favorite preacher that America's ever produced, or one of them. Mm. Um, what's unique about him, uh, besides the fact that not enough people know him, <laughs> what is unique about him uh, in American history? He was the first ordained black minister, right? Yes, he was. First ordained black minister, um, he... Uh, Fought in the Revolutionary War. He learned the languages, Latin and Greek. He was a popular speaker, um, well-known for his um, eloquence and his sermons. He was just a phenomenal um, Mm. person, a phenomenal person. And early on, because he writes um, in the 1700s, um, Mm -hmm. and one of the essays that he writes, Liberty Further Extended, he writes that near 1776, which is, as mm. we know, a pivotal date mm-hmm. in our nation's history. And he writes that essay in response to um, slavery, what's happening in the nation. Mm-hmm. And that that title, Liberty Further Extended, kind of gives you some insight of what the essay is I love is about. that title. I love <laughs> right? that title. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like we're, we're fighting for liberty as a nation. Now let's extend oh, that liberty yeah. to our black brothers and sisters. And it's an eloquent, powerful essay mm. um, in which he pretty much, I could say, um, refutes Many mm-hmm. of the interpretive moves that slaveholders are using to justify mm-hmm. enslavement. Um, he's just a profound thinker, a profound theologian, and a profound interpreter of scripture. Like in one part, in one part of his essay, he um, talks about you know the slaveholders' interpretation of the Ham story, for instance, mm-hmm. and he refutes that. One of the ways he refutes it is saying. You know, there's really no way for us to know who Canaan's posterity are, who who his descendants are. So how can you make that connection between Canaan and African Americans? And another way he he refutes that interpretation is another ingenious way. He uses Romans, Paul's writing of Romans to talk about how... um, In Paul's day, you had these people going around saying, okay, we can sin so grace can abound. And Mm -hmm, he takes mm -hmm. that and uses that for his own context, right? Because you have slaveholders who are saying, okay, yeah, but slavery may not be all that great, but there's some good coming about from it, right? It's quote unquote good, right? Right. These Africans are being civilized or they can get the gospel. And Haynes refutes that. He's saying, he says, just as Paul answers those in his context, Let's do evil so that good may come. God forbid. He 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 relates that to mm-hmm. his own context. Participate mm-hmm. in slavery so something good can come about. God forbid. Yeah. We should not be engaging in that. So he's just a profound theologian and thinker and interpreter of scripture. You're listening to Uncommentary. This is Marty Duran. My guest today is Dr. Lisa Bowens, and we're talking about the subject of her book and making reference to her book, African American Readings of Paul. 
reception, resistance, and transformation. And we'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. And there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. Uh, Lisa, there's a scripture that appears several times in the sermons that you quote it's it's referenced a number of times so i'm going to read the scripture and then i'm going to read a quote from your book on page 155 the scriptures acts 17 26 uh, and it says and this is from the esv because it was close by and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place um then you write in, uh, in your book, this particular Pauline text, Acts 17.26, persists among African-American writers during this time period, for in it they see a, re a refutation of unjust laws, racism, slavery, and white supremacy. An appeal to God's creative act in behalf of humanity indicates a fundamental truth about that humanity and its divine existence and purpose. Talk a little bit about what you found as you kept coming across this particular verse being used uh, over and again? Yeah, thanks, Marty. That's a great question. Um, Acts 17.26 is a pivotal passage for so many um, African-American interpreters. And you see it early on, as early as 1700s, um, in a petition written by enslaved Africans. They mm. use this passage to talk about and they're using the King James version, right? Because that's mm -hmm. the version mm -hmm. that's in use during this time. But they it's used... the one Jesus used, so that's the one they used. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They want to use Jesus. <laughs> so this verse appears early on in the 1700s, right? In this petition where they are petitioning for their freedom mm. that God has made of one blood all the nations of the earth. Right? Mm -hmm. And they use that verse to refute this idea that the black race is inferior to the white race, right? Mm -hmm. And that they should be enslaved. Because if God is made of one blood, then we're one humanity. Right, and right. And there's, you can't, one race is not superior to the other. And so you see this passage early on, as I said, in the 1700s, but then it keeps coming up in various sermons and people's autobiographies. They keep coming back to this passage because of its emphasis on one humanity, because mm. of its emphasis on God's creation of one humanity. And I think, too, another reason why this passage keeps coming up is because um, many of these interpreters are 
declaring their own humanity, right? Mm-hmm. In a system that's denying them that. Right. So if God has made us of one blood, um, then I'm human. I'm mm-hmm. just like you, right? I'm just like you. And so we're one humanity. So you see in the 1700s, it comes back up in the 1800s. Um, it's used by many um, Black women preachers. It comes back up when you get to the civil rights movement and King's work. It is a common refrain um, for many African-American interpreters because it, it emphasizes um, their humanity. It emphasizes mm-hmm. the oneness of humanity. It also emphasizes God's creative intent, right? Mm-hmm. That So um, what, okay, yeah. on the flip side of that then, what did slaveholder theology do with that verse? I mean, you know, we like to say, well, the Bible's pretty clear. Well, you look at that verse and the Bible's pretty clear. (laughs) So what did, I mean, what did, what did slaveholders do with that verse? I mean, they just skip it like they did so many others. Yes, because they are interpreting, um, the slavery, the slavery project through Genesis, Right. Through mm-hmm. the Ham story, through mm-hmm. the Cain story, and they're reading Paul through the way they're reading the Genesis story. Ah. So if you're reading the Ham story as um, enslavement for all time for African Americans, and if you're reading as some did, the mark of Cain that God puts on mm-hmm. Cain is the mark Turning of black, black. skin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if you're reading the Old Testament in that way, when you get to Paul, slavery of your masters, then for them, sla- the Pauline passages are just affirming the way they're reading Genesis. Right? Wow. OK. Yeah. So and another move I would say that many slaveholders are making, like you have some black interpreters who use Galatians 328. It doesn't come up as often as I thought it would, but it does come up a few mm-hmm. times. But. When slaveholders are reading that passage, they're thinking of that eschatologically, right? This is not for now. This is for in the future. And then you, and then you even have some. How convenient. <laughs> and then you have even have some variations on that, right? That um, yeah. you know, you read some of these documents, you see that some even thought the afterlife would be segregated. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's different variations on on these passages um, by slaveholders. But, yeah, so it's a good question. But, yeah, they are reading selectively, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So let's well, talk about Philemon. Okay, uh, yeah. The, the only book of the Bible that I would ever like to write a book on is Philemon. Um, wow. Yeah. So. It's been referred to as the Pauline hammer uh, mm-hmm. in the way that it was used by slaveholders to keep their uh, slaves subjected mm-hmm. um, in the mm-hmm. fact that that they interpret it as Paul telling this runaway slave mm-hmm. to go back to his master. Uh, yeah. They're so for the shortest for one of the shortest books, I guess Paul's shortest book uh, for his most personal letter. Uh, it's so deeper and there's so many more layers to it than mm-hmm. the average white pastor, especially in America today, uh, bothers to go with it. But I'm curious as to how uh, African-American pastors in the era that you studied approached Philemon because it is easy to get the idea that it's all about going back to the master and being subject to him, which is how it was used. Mm-hmm. So how was it interpreted? And did some just say, nah, 
not going to mess with that one? Yeah, that's a great question. So I talk about Philemon a little bit in the book. And as we know, it was, as you said, used by slaveholders to justify enslavement. And it was mm-hmm. also a scriptural basis for the Fugitive Slave Act, right? Right. So yep. it becomes part of passing that law that mm-hmm. um, bans or outlaws slaves and escaping, right? Mm-hmm. And the basis for that, you know, if, if if Paul sends Onesimus back, right, to Philemon, then mm-hmm. Paul is on our side in a sense, the slaveholders are saying. Right. right. So yeah. we, we yeah. could pass this law banning enslaved persons from freeing enslavement, right? It's it's mm-hmm. not right. So you have people like um, Frederick Douglass who argues vehemently against the way slaveholders are interpreting Philemon. And as we know, Frederick Douglass was an abolitionist. He was an enslaved mm-hmm. person and then he escapes and he writes about his experiences in enslavement. And he becomes a major spokesperson for abolition. And in one of in one of his speeches, he talks about how slaveholders are interpreting Philemon. Mm-hmm. And he lifts up um, talk about um, close reading of text and careful exegesis. Douglas <laughs> is doing that, right? Because he says if you really read Philemon you'll see that Paul is not sending Onesimus back as an enslaved person. Mm -hmm. He says, when you really read Philemon and you see the language that Paul uses, receive him as a brother. Yeah. Receive him as you would receive me, Paul. Douglas says, there's no way he's sending him back as an enslaved person. He's actually telling Philemon to free Onesimus, right? That he's your brother. And if you would receive him as you would receive me, right? Um, Yeah then he's not an enslaved person. So and invoking Douglas, the brother language in the Middle East is even stronger than it is in outside the Middle East. I mean, that's like you bring him in and he is now your family. He is, exactly. you, you can't enslave your family. This is your actual brother and you got to receive him as that. It's so much stronger than we think of here. Exactly, exactly. And Douglas picks up on this familial language mm-hmm. that Paul uses. And uses that language of scripture to refute how the slaveholders are interpreting Philemon. Wow. Um, it's a powerful, a powerful exegesis from Douglas. That is amazing. Dr. Lisa Bowens is my guest. Uh, African-American readings of Paul, Reception, Resistance, and Transformation. If you're listening and you're a pastor, uh, this book is worth getting for the quote material that you can get out of it. She's done all the work for you. All you have to do is flip through the pages and you have quote after quote after quote that you can add to your sermons. It's a, it's a really great book. I'm really glad that you wrote it. And I hope oh, it, I, I hope it does really, really well. Has, has anybody picked it up for a textbook? I have had some people email me and say they are using it for their classes. So That's I'm fantastic. very grateful, very grateful for that support. That's awesome. Now, are you on social media at all? I mean, I, I think I found you on Twitter one time, but it's like it's like a tumbleweed just goes through every now and then. Yeah, I'm really not. I mean, I'm on social media, but I'm not on social media. <laughs> yeah, I get it. It's probably it's probably a smart decision. <laughs> I need to do a better job, but I tell you, I'm yeah, 
Yeah, I get it. I totally (laughs) trust me. I'm on it enough for me and you and 10 other people. So (laughs) don't, I got you covered. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Oh, wow. Well, thanks so much for hanging out. Hope you have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or Castbox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, And as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Uncommentary Podcast.